Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit softer. Thank you. All right. Who here? Let me think here. Who here has... The youngest child. Who's got the youngest child? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to do. You're gonna have to help me. Um, Becky, do you think you have the youngest child present? Oh, are you the youngest? Well, that's another way to do it. I'm gonna give away a book. So um, you're gonna have. Who has the youngest child here? Is there anyone? Is there like a six-month-old here? Is there a? Is it Anya? Is it? Is it Eliza? Is it Georgie? Where is Georgie's mom? Okay, well, Anya, this is for this is for uh, Ashley, right? It's Ashley. Uh, it's Paul Tripp's book on parenting. Okay, fourteen gospel principles. Now, hear this: that can radically change your family. We all needed that, right? So here, for only fourteen. Yeah, that's enough, though. I don't know if I could keep track of this. So give this to Ashley. And uh, do you know that Ashley's trained? She was, she was a professional ballet lady. Did you know that? Ashley. We should have some liturgical dance with her or something. Uh, this is, we need to meet her. Hi, Ashley. Hi, how are you? Come on up here. Dance for us. No. Um, okay, so who has, who, where's the youngest marriage here? Is there a youngest marriage? Huh? What? What? Marianne, you're shaking. Okay. Well, youngest marriage here. She's got Ruth. Anyone else? You got to you got to help me here. You got to help me. Okay, Ruth, you're going to be given a book called Bold Love. Okay, and uh, this will certainly relate to just life in general. But I just thought this this is a really wise book, and it somewhat relates to marriage. But I just thought I'd give it away today. So there you go. Okay, yeah, it's a good book on counseling. She's doing the bold love with her. You know James, right? You know her husband? Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, this is a good moment, important moment for the church. Um, help us to tap into the power that's available for us in Jesus. Um, and uh, in this moment, um, help the words I say to be what I'm talking about. Help my words to be edifying, uplifting, encouraging, and uh, help them become words that are falling from heaven itself. Uh, and pray that you will bless your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so uh, as I read scripture there... Um, you got a you got a, a bit of a feel for for it. Um, the the message of Acts fourteen is uh, this last passage I've wanted to speak on. Uh, in fact, I have highlighted it purposely. So we're just there at the last verses of Acts fourteen. And as I was planning the sermons, I wanted to make sure that we just spent time on this section. This is a section in Acts that you'd be tempted to just read over as sort of a historical note. Uh, thank you, Dr. Luke, for your insights. That's nice that they got back to, to Antioch, right? So Paul and Silas have just completed their first, um, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their 
first missionary journey, and they were sent by a church in an area, a town called Antioch. And so uh, they come back to this sending church. We are seeing, developing, uh, the church is getting organized. Um, unlike people who are into disorganized religion, or I'm not into organized, have you, how many have heard that? I'm not into organized religion, right? I just always assume, well, they must be into disorganized religion. But um, the church is, the attempt is to have the church organized. In fact, the, the mother church is sort of Jerusalem at this point. Um, but the church is organized with elders. Uh, that's what Paul and Barnabas did uh, on their first missionary journey. They established churches, and a church wasn't established until elders were uh, given uh, oversight uh, in the congregation. So, so they return to, to Antioch, and they give a report. They give a report. Now, the, um, the sermon in a sentence here goes like this. The sermon in a sentence is essentially words are always supposed to be spoken for edification. They are to be spoken for the upbuilding of and the building up of an individual. And I am convinced that this report was received with great joy and it spoke to the heart of the Antioch church. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a presentation, some of you in the military, you have these what PowerPoint things that go on and on and on, and uh, you have some, wow, uh, so less than joy when you have the idea that you have to go to uh, somebody doing a presentation, right? There are times that a... Uh, a presentation, a lecture, a seminar. Oh, it's not a sermon, is it? Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't hit home with you. It doesn't touch you. It doesn't uh, connect with you. Um, I was just in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee this last week. I had a week of study, and I was able to attend a conference. This is my little name tag. I brought it. I'm just so proud of it. Um, Emotions, it was for Christian counselors on emotions engaging the expressions of our hearts. Now, this gathering connected with my heart. And I think whenever you have a sermon, a presentation, and someone is speaking to your world and this relates to me, it obviously is a meaningful thing. Here in our passage of Scripture, we have a report from Paul and Barnabas about their first missionary journey. And there is a key phrase that says that the grace of God had commissioned them or commended them for this work. And then there's another key phrase when they give their report, and the report says, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I'm convinced that that um, expression there would have resonated with that sending church because if you are a sending church, you want something good to happen. You, you, there's some, you're engaged in it. Right? It's like if you're a praying person, if you pray for someone and then you hear the response of 
I mean, you hear some result of, of the situation you've been praying for, you are engaged in that and it has much more meaning to you. The Antioch church is a very critical church. It's playing uh, a more significant strategic role in the kingdom than uh, even the, the Jerusalem church, which um, is kind of sort of going to kind of fade from view for, for at least in the book of Acts. Antioch is a strategic kingdom-minded church. They are not ingrown. They are seeking to impact the world, and they have sent two key individuals uh, to, to help reach essentially a whole continent because they will end up heading to Europe. It's quite remarkable. So I want to talk to you today in the time that we have, it's certainly a big subject. I want to talk to you today about the purpose of your words, our words. What are we supposed to say when we interact with one another? It's really quite remarkable that you have a ministry with your words. You have a ministry to your spouse. You have a ministry to uh, your coworkers, ministry to your children. And that ministry, by and large, happens through words. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the idea that your words are to be deeply purposeful, and they are to be, at their very basic level, redemptive, and uh, we're going to explore what that means. Because as you use words, you are, like the seminars I went to in Chattanooga, um, you are to be speaking to the issues of the hearts of people, and that is a vitally important thing. That helps a church feel and be alive. But the words are purposeful and meaningful. So two questions that start with how, and then one, one question that starts with a what. How was the Antioch church encouraged? How was the Antioch church encouraged? They were provided a report about the power of God's word, about the faithfulness of God to open hearts, to open the door of faith. They were encouraged that God was using the words of Paul and Barnabas to accomplish something that is impossible. Now, I don't know if you have ever thought about this or you've ever had any doctrinal training on this, but the Bible presents clearly that there is nothing in the human heart that wants to respond to the preached word. There is nothing in the human heart that wants to respond to Scripture. Nothing. The human heart is happy, or at least it thinks it is. The human heart is content. And as Jeremiah 2 in our confession, the human heart is producing God substitutes. And even Israel, Jeremiah noted that Israel was making cisterns. A cistern was a water reserve that would deliver water to a home or a village. A cistern that was cracked and can hold no water. So even though while we make these cisterns with, that can't make, hold any water, our hearts are pursuing God's substitutes. So when you have a conversion, 
someone is believing in Jesus. That is a radical um, announcement that God has changed the heart of that person. In the language of Jeremiah, that he has taken their heart of stone and he has given them a heart of flesh. Now, uh, Paul and Barnabas encountered polytheistic pagans who were rather dangerous. They threw rocks at, at Paul. They left Paul for dead under a pile of rocks in a town called Lystra. It was rugged going, this first missionary journey. But they come back and they're not, they're not embittered. They're not saying, I'm, I've had enough of that stuff. They've come back to the church at Antioch and their, their hearts are rejoicing that the, the, a door of faith was opened. Was opened. Now, this is, a, this is Luke's shorthand for God has rescued people from their condition. He has through the preaching of the gospel, the establishment of these churches, the discipling of people, he's trained them through opening their hearts that through Jesus and Jesus alone, a person can be declared righteous before a holy God. Not based on any works that they do, but by sheer faith alone. And this is what we're going to celebrate next, next Sunday. The righteousness that comes through faith, this is Romans 10, the righteousness that comes through faith does not, does not try to ascend into heaven through good works or, or descend into hell for some reason. Doesn't, it doesn't try to work its way to salvation. The righteousness of faith receives, the, the, excuse me, the, the, the way faith works is it receives the righteousness that comes through Christ. And this resonated with the people in Antioch. They understood it. They got it. And they made disciples. And they brought back this remarkable report that churches were established there Elders were providing care and oversight. And the gospel was moving into Gentile territory and was becoming established. Those are the words that they used. They encouraged the Antioch believers. Now, how am I called to use words as a believer? How am I called to use words? Um... By the way, there's not a few Christians who've never asked that question. <laughs> uh, they think they can use any words they want. Uh, they can express their emotions any way they want, um, particularly if they're hurt, offended, uh, and in their response to perhaps sin, they sin. They sin with their words. So this is a vitally important concept and idea for life in the church. How are we to call to use words as a believer? We are to use words that are motivated to build up 
someone by addressing some fear. We are to address, if you have ever been encouraged by someone, you played a sport and your coach looked at you and spoke into your life, encouraged you because you were fearful that you were not getting the sport, you played an instrument, and uh, your, your teacher encouraged you when you were most frustrated, and they gave you some message that spoke to a fear inside of you like, I'm never going to get this. Words of encouragement, and this comes from Counselor Larry Crabb, words of encouragement are usually directed to some fear that a person may be feeling, or you're you're intuitively picking up that this might be a word that addresses their heart concern. I, have a, I don't know, I just struck this to me as a funny thing. I don't know, it's just, uh, a man, let's say a man. Now, ladies, you can hear, listen to this one. A man brings, uh, out, of, out of the blue, he wants to bring muffins to church. And we're all concerned. Can he bake? Does he understand the difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon? Especially when it comes to baking powder. Have you ever had muffins with tablespoons of baking powder instead of teaspoons? Anyone made that mistake? I'm feeling lonely up here. Okay. So this man brings muffins to church. Isn't that nice? And you're not sure they're going to taste that great. But you're there, and you're there with him after church. Would you say something of encouragement to him? What would it be like? And you can sense that he's a little bit anxious, a little bit, uh, you know, he ke- keeps saying, it's my first time to make muffins. It was my and he keeps going on and on about. And you would say, you know what? Thank, I deeply appreciate your effort. That's great. Uh, and then you think about, you know, they, they, came, they came out good. This is great. In other words, you, something simple like that, you are actually speaking to a fear that the person is feeling. You take some dish to a fellowship event in your fellowship group, you bring something and you have some, you want some assurance. Well, you're, you're going to speak to that fear, aren't you? Really. And now, it, it, on a scale of one to ten, the fear may be on a, a two or three, but it's, it's there. That's what life in the church is about. Life in the church is that way. We need to become skilled at this. Our words are to address what's going on with the audience, the people, our friends, and with new people, we're to speak to them, welcome them, speak meaningfully to their, to their lives. Popular idea now called emotional intelligence. This is essentially emotional intelligence in the church. Hebrews 10.24 says, Our words are to spur one another to love. So God owns your words. Paul uses the language of we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, an ambassador does not represent their family, their opinions. They represent a country, and they speak on behalf of that country. We are speaking on behalf of the kingdom. Now, the Ephesians struggled with this. And the Apostle Paul had to tell them about the use of their words. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. 
Well, what's the point of that? That it may give grace to those who hear. So it's addressing the motivation behind our words. This report, it would be an easy thing for us to overlook. This report is remarkably important because will the Antioch church be encouraged to keep up the cross-cultural vision? Will they be encouraged? And they are hearing from an individual who, who they tried to murder him. And he's saying, it's okay. God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They relaxed the fears that would have been in anyone who had sent and financially committed to it and what you know what's the purpose of this is this even worth it i don't know i like our church we've got enough ministry here in antioch we what's the, and then you think all these justifications would it be worth it sounds dangerous out there those listeners i've always thought they were crazy you know and the, you have you know, all this thinking that would be resisting it and they're speaking to the fears a protective layer is now being being spoken into and uh and these men are speaking with great faith as they give their report. How am I called to use words? I'm called to use words for redemptive purposes. Now, the whole demeanor and tone, for instance, why do we start our worship service off with that, to all who are thirsty, to all who are weary, to all who wonder if God cares, right? What we're really doing in there is we're, pre- we're presenting a church of non-condemnation. We're presenting a safe place to struggle, and maybe the chief struggler up front will lead the way. It's a safe place. It's a safe place. If, if a church doesn't think in terms of gospel culture, just gospel doctrine, beat, 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 doctrine, doctrine, that gospel creates a culture, church must be aware of that. Your words are shaping a culture. We have a political discourse that has lost its way. It is shaping the culture of a country, the way people are talking. Social media, everyone's got words, but not a lot of words are redemptive. So why do we start off our worship service that way? To create a place of welcome and safety well, what would be what, what's going on there? That people could, perhaps after the service, perhaps during the service, be free with, I need God to speak to me in this way. Here's a fear in my life. It's a safe place. You'll never express your fears if you don't feel like you are among safe people. So we are to be encouraging in our words, and for redemptive purposes. Now, all that's a big setup. And by the way, we've lost our clock in the back of the room. Now, that's very dangerous. Wow. Is it back? Is it? Oh, it's over there. Thank you, Chris. Uh, okay. Why don't you put it back about 10 minutes? Okay. So here's the introduction. The introduction is done, and now we're going to start preaching. So what are the resources for me 
to be encouraged as I pursue encouraging others. Uh, by the way, as you realize, Paul was stoned in Lystra, and it was a very difficult experience. Then he begins to talk about suffering in his epistles, about afflictions. I wonder where he got those thoughts. He was thinking about his, his, the people in Lystra, no doubt. To love is, is lonely, by the way. To love is a lonely thing to, at times. Who's going to love me back? Have you ever felt that? I, I mean, I'm loving. I did. I, I brought this. I, I cared for them. I, right? Someone's sick in the church, and to, you know, well, did they? They didn't, they didn't even say thank you. I want, I want a reciprocating love when I interact with people, and love is an awfully lonely thing. And then it even gets worse because Paul, motivated by the love of God, is stoned and left for dead in Lystra. The, uh, the Lystrans were not reciprocating. Let's just put it that way. What about me when love is not reciprocated? Well, there is remarkable power in the gospel where Paul tells the Corinthians who had a hard time with troubles and afflictions and things they didn't approve of. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way. Are you ready for ministry? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, who's doing all this striking down? Who's doing all this persecution? Who's doing all this affliction? People. People you're trying to serve for good purposes. What about me? What about me? And it's kind of popular in Christian counseling books to think about your own uh, needs, your own focus on yourself. There's not a lot of solution in some of these books. Because the Apostle Paul is describing power while one is not receiving love back from other people. I'm interested in power to live the Christian life. I hope you are. Whenever the gospel's functioning in our lives, power and freedom are right at the top of the list. Power to love your husband when you feel something just not giving back like you would like him to give back to you. Power to give, to love when you feel so alone. And then Paul says this to the Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 10. Always, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas walking out of Lystra, Paul's head swollen and 
bleeding, no stitches, just moving along, going 60 miles later to an uh, area called Derby, and they plant another church there. And as they're walking along, did the Apostle Paul think we are always carrying in, in our bodies the death of Jesus? And here's the zinger, ready? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then he goes on, he says, so death works in us, but life in you. So, what resources do I have to encourage other people because it's lonely, it's hard, you'll come to the end of your love very quickly. What are the resources there that you might work in power? What are they? The first one is, Death, death to yourself. That's the first resource. Isn't that an odd one? Death to yourself. Death to your agenda about how people ought to love you. Death to your perception of what people owe you. The resource is death. Death to what you think you deserve. Death to what you demand from your spouse. Death to what you could demand from the Lystrans. Death to what you could demand from the people of Papua New Guinea. And then what will this death do? It will produce in you life. Life looks like courage. Life looks like strength. Life looks like I sense God's presence with me. Many of us, and I would say to myself, I am preoccupied, and this is, there's much good to this, I am preoccupied with the death of Jesus for me. That, that's, that's good. There's one more step. Are you ready? There's one more step to move beyond that. And that is, the death of Jesus for me allows me to have a death to myself in order to serve others. You might encourage someone with words and you might think, well, this will just go to their head. They'll, they'll just be, you know, and this will mess them up. It'll make them prideful. We're not responsible for the results of our encouragement. We're responsible to encourage, to speak to the fears people have and to draw from this remarkable resource of death. There's another remarkable um, resource, and it is called glory. Glory. If you have ever felt, perhaps it's through, through preaching, perhaps reading the Word of God, perhaps you're, you're gathered in a fellowship group, if you've ever felt a sense of, I get it, God's holding me. I'm no longer a leaky love tank. I, I get it. God is holding me. I, I, I'm sensing something wonderful about him, and I sense his presence. I sense his, his continuing love for me. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not as divided as I thought I was. I'm being held together. You have been in some way perceiving the glory of Christ. Samuel Rutherford was a, a Puritan from years ago, 
And he says, and he uses an old word that means torn asunder or divided, a word that's riven is the word. He says this, Christ, all the seasons of the year, is dropping sweetness. If I had vessels, I might fill them, but my old riven, divided, cracked, my old riven, holy, like holes, and running out dish, even when I am well, can bring little away. Nothing but glory might make tight and fast our leaky and rifty vessels. That means cracked, broken. How little of the sea can a child carry in his hand as, as little as I take away from my great sea, my boundless and running over Jesus Christ. Glory. What are the resources that would cause you to move towards someone to, to be willing to go back into Lystra? remarkable glory of Christ that you can see and perceive and pursue. You see, when they said this is an open door of faith, they sensed glory in it. God is redeeming this world by the mere proclamation of the gospel, and he's giving the gift of faith. Augustine said this, if we but turn to God, it, it itself is a gift from him. God is giving gifts to his people God is redeeming a people for himself. This transcends whoever is our president. This transcends whatever we hope for in this life because we are now engaged in true hope. And this hope is now being filled by glory. We see a glorious Christ. God, Paul told the Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our where? Does anyone know where? Shown where? In our hearts. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the days of creation, has now in our redemption, he has shown, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Actually, the phrase goes, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One final resource for you. It's right here on this table. And then I'm done. To love is a lonely thing. To love in the church is a lonely thing. Others in the church may not meet your needs. It's a wonderful thing when it happens, but it may not happen. In fact, you may go long periods of time of just serving and what about, what about me? I feel so lonely. What are the encouraging things? We have a deep, expansive sea of the glory of Jesus. We are never alone in this love. We have the Holy Spirit with us. And now we have the Lord's Supper. You see, what God is doing, not only in the preached word, but in the holding of these elements and the tasting of these elements and the consuming of these elements, what God is doing is he is encouraging you and he is speaking to a fear. God has ordained that it's not enough that you hear this, but that you see this work of redemption. God has thought about your fears. 
got has thought about your insecurities. He has thoroughly thought about what you need. And this is ordained by God, prescribed to encourage you about his attitude toward you. Remember that Jesus, author Paul Miller said, Jesus is the only one who, as he was loving, experienced true loneliness. None of us, as we are loving, will ever be as lonely as Jesus. He cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? You have You have taken from me the sweetness of your presence. The religious leaders of Israel cried out, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's utterly alone. Jesus, in this cup and the bread, reminds us that he suffered for your fears. You see, we have received a report a report about what Jesus, the first missionary. We've received the report of Scripture that Jesus and his atonement was received. He walked out of the grave. Heaven has received him. The gift of the Holy Spirit is assuring us. We have, Sunday after Sunday, a report. Remarkable. And the report is that in his body and his blood, which you will taste and consume, in his body and his blood, the report says he was able through his body to open a way to the Father. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's the report we have in Scripture. Sinners can enter the very presence of God with true and final fear-reducing atonement. God doesn't want you to feel so alone as you love others. He assures you regularly that he is with you. Thank him as he opened the door of faith in your heart. You are a miracle of his work. He continues to assure you that he himself will keep the door open. He tells one of the churches in the book of Revelation, I open the door and no one can shut it. He continues to keep the door of of faith open in your heart. Your faith may go up. Your faith may go down. It will be attacked. You will feel uh, far from God. You'll be assailed. But God himself is keeping the door of faith open in in you. And it's a door that no no one can shut. Confess. Lord, I I, want to love in order that others would love me but I want to have your love for people. I have a leaky love tank, and I was made for you. Fill it. Seal it. Beat down by faith the cries of pride that says, I want a report from people about me. No, I want to hear the report about Jesus again, about how he defended me, loved me. Help me behold divine love such that failed human love is but a trivial thing. Listen to that again. Beholding divine love, such that failed human love is a trivial thing. That's, That's a high goal. That's difficult. 
find in Jesus the glorious glue that will hold together your life when you feel like you are not able to love. May he speak to your fears as you eat his body and his blood by faith. Let's pray. Father, your grace, help us to become those who report of your glory to change us. Open the door of faith in our hearts. Assist us that death might be working in us that we might give life to others. That we might be a death to self encouraging others church who pursue the glory of Jesus as our only sustaining strength for all of life. Thank you. Thank you for the Son of God who went to the cross, who loves us, who encourages us in all our fears. In the name of this matchless, death-conquering name, we pray. Amen. Amen.